This is a gift that someone gave to Kathy and me not too long ago. It's a, it's a white dish towel. There's actually something written on this white dish towel. Would you like to know what it is? Let me show it to you now. You have to excuse it. We've used it a lot and trying to clean it up so it would look better for you today. Kind of made it worse, but I'll tell you what it says. You ready? Can you see what that says? It says, I love Jesus, but I drink a little. He said, I love Jesus, but I drink a little. Now, I could tell you who gave us this as a gift, but that person is here today, and I wouldn't want you to judge that person, so I won't say who it is. What I find fascinating about this particular dish towel is that putting this saying on anything would sell. Whether it's a dish towel or a t-shirt or a, a coffee mug, someone thought, hey, if I say I love Jesus, but I drink a little, somebody will buy that. And they did buy it. Here it is. Why? Why is this funny? You, you laughed. I think it's a, a commentary on how powerful the church has been in defining what righteousness is. If you are a righteous person, if you really love Jesus, you will not drink, not even a little, or dance, or smoke, or chew, or hang out with those who do. So Christians who buy this for themselves or give it as a gift to someone else feel just a little bit naughty, a little bit rebellious. I had to get my nerve up just to show you that I had this and display it in my house. We tend to want to make righteousness easy, even thoughtless. Let's just make righteousness a checklist of do's and don'ts. But righteousness so much deeper and bigger and better than that. Righteousness isn't only a, a prohibitive negative. True righteousness, it's positive. And when we are truly righteous people, we are not burdened. Instead, our lives are, are blessed and our lives flourish. When we are truly righteous people, our lives reflect what the kingdom of God is like. And that, in turn, leads to blessing and flourishing for others and for the growth of the kingdom. So a lot is at stake here. You and I, we must be righteous people. That's what we'll talk about this morning as we come once again to Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter. And when you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand and to steady yourself on the pew in front of you because this is a long passage this morning, but we're going to read it with thankful hearts. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 20, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable 
to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is a throne of God, or by the earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard it said that it was, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the, the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would bless this reading of your word so much here for us this morning, Lord, and we need uh, your spirit to guide us through it, to teach us your truth, to transform us by it, Lord, so that we truly might be righteous people in this world for your glory. That's our prayer. That's our hope. And so we ask it of you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this morning we have to look at the entirety of this passage, all 28 verses. Now, don't go into speechless shock or cardiac arrest. Full disclosure, we don't have any defibrillators here. I know that my tendency in preaching is not to look at the forest 
these big sweeping passages of Scripture, i.e. four years in the book of Deuteronomy. But instead to look at the details, the individual trees, the branches on the trees, the twigs on the branches of the trees, the bend and the twig of the branches on the trees. I get it. I know what I'm like. But if I do that this morning, we might miss the vital truth that Jesus is conveying here. In fact, by focusing on the details, we could end up doing the very thing that Jesus is trying to prevent. You and I might wrongly define righteousness. So to prevent us from doing that, we've got to connect your righteousness that you see in verse 20 with you therefore must be perfect that we see in verse 48. Because these two verses, they are the heart of what Jesus is teaching. These two verses serve as bookends for everything that comes between them. And what comes between them are these six teachings of Jesus on anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving enemies. But they're all used to illustrate righteousness and perfection. Obviously, these teachings are vitally important because Jesus chose them to be the teachings he used to illustrate his point. But any law would have worked. Jesus could have chosen six different laws to draw the contrast between perceived righteousness and true righteousness. And that's the difference that Jesus wants his audience to perceive. That's what he wants any dishtal audience to understand. The difference between perceived righteousness and true righteousness. So, in order to do that, Jesus had to really shock his audience. To wake them up. To make them listen differently than they had been listening before. To make them think differently than they had been thinking before. And that's what he does in verse 20. This verse is like cold water in their face. He says to them, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know what hopes these people had. Or why they took time out of their day to pause for a while on this mountain and to listen to all the things that Jesus had to say. I don't know how they hoped their life might be changed or different. I don't know what hope they had for finding maybe more peace or joy or love or meaning. But I would imagine that when they heard Jesus speak these words in verse 20... All the wind of hope just went out of their sails. Their hope must have been completely deflated. If getting what they hoped for means being more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, they should abandon all hope. Literally throw in the dish towel. Because the scribes were highly trained in the law of God. In the Old Testament, please imagine, scribes began their training as children. And their training wasn't complete until they were 40 years old. That's when they could be ordained. Can you imagine? Studying that much. 
The scribes knew that there were 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions in the law of God for a total of 613, and they knew them all. The people listening to Jesus on the mountain, they didn't even read or speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke Aramaic. So how in the world could they hope to be more righteous than the scribes who knew the law so well? The Pharisees, unlike the scribes, they were not vocational religious men. They were just regular businessmen who happened to be part of this sect called Pharisees, which happened to mean separatists. Not really much different from you. You go about your work, you go about your life, you do what you do, but you just happen to align yourself with Presbyterianism and all that that means. And we won't say anything else about that. So the goal of the life of the Pharisee as he lived out his life, was to keep the laws that the scribes told them about and interpreted for them. They were completely devoted to the law. So much so that if the main law was here in the center, pick a law, if it was here in the center, then what the Pharisees did was they added laws. They put them all around the main law. They called it building a fence. So afraid they were of breaking this law that they built a fence of other laws around it so they would not get near, anywhere near, breaking the main law. So Jesus gives an example of how Pharisees act. He tells a story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. They both go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee prays this. I fast twice a week. Now, the actual law of God, and therefore what God required, was only one fast a year. One fast a year on the Day of Atonement. God requires one fast. The Pharisee fasts 104 times. Now, if I've done my math right, that means that the Pharisee does 104% more than God requires. So how could these people, listening to Jesus, even hope to be as righteous as these men, let alone more righteous. Didn't matter what opinion the people held of the scribes and Pharisees. Didn't matter if they considered them nice people or not. Didn't matter if they found them pompous or arrogant or condescending. It didn't matter. Because whatever the scribes and the Pharisees were in the minds of the people, that equaled being righteous. They had no concept that righteousness was anything else than what they saw and heard from the scribes and the Pharisees. For you and for me, it would be like coming to a traffic light and stopping when the light was green and going when the light was red. Now, some of you may not do that, but you're not supposed to. We don't have a concept of that. Red means stop. Green means go. Scribe means righteous. Pharisee means righteous. And righteous means knowing and understanding and keeping a lot of rules. And so Jesus has shocked the crowd, gotten their attention, and perhaps even driven them to uh, hopelessness or maybe despair by commanding them, you have to be more righteous than these men are. And so now he's gotten them ready to listen. To have, he will define true righteousness. To be the kind of righteousness that was 
not considered righteousness at all. Matthew has already given us a picture of what it looks like back in chapter 1 with the story of Mary and Joseph. Joseph must have loved Mary so very much. And if he felt any anger, if he felt any disgust when Mary came to him and said she was expecting a baby that he knew did not belong to him, that anger or disgust was overcome by true righteousness. In a very real moment in his life, in a, a, a real-life heart-wrenching crisis, a crisis that was going to forever change the landscape of Joseph's life before God spoke miraculously into that crisis, before God told him the special nature of the son that was to be born. Before all that, Joseph made this decision, and Matthew writes, And her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Had Matthew made an appointment with the scribe or Pharisee to get their counsel on this situation, they would have counseled him according to the law. Expose Mary's sin, her adultery, and have her stoned to death for it. Now, like it or not, that's what the law allowed. And had Joseph followed this path, no one would have said, Joseph, you are unrighteous. But Joseph is God's kind of a righteous man. And perhaps that's why God chose to entrust his son to his care. Joseph knows that righteousness is not merely a matter of externals, of rules and laws. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. And so Joseph decides to follow the law, to retain his personal righteousness by divorcing Mary, but he will do it quietly. In great love and compassion, he refused to have her shamed publicly, and he would not have her put to death. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, this kind of behavior, this kind of deciding in real life situations is forever recorded as righteous. Joseph was a righteous man. Now before we continue talking about righteousness, I want to be clear that, that Jesus here is not talking about imputed righteousness. Theological term. Imputed righteousness is that righteousness by which we are saved. Imputed righteousness is what the Apostle Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All that to say that Jesus, the perfect, sinless one, took our sin upon himself. We are so indebted to sin, we could never dig our way out of the debt. Jesus paid it for us. It's a double imputation. Jesus took our sin from us, and he gave to us his perfect righteousness. So it's as if Jesus says to you and me here, 
bless your heart in the best sort of way. Give me those filthy, awful rags that you are wearing. Give them to me. We give them to Jesus. And then he says, here, you take this beautiful robe of my righteousness, and that's what you wear now. That's imputed righteousness. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Jesus gives it to us by his grace through faith. You know that. It's what we sing. What can wash away my sin? This is all my righteousness. Okay, so are we all clear on that? Not talking about imputed righteousness here. We're talking about here is a righteousness, which is a way of living in this world. Now we're going to quote the Westminster Confession. So good. Calls it good works. These good works, this righteousness, done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. This is what we're talking about. Jonathan Pennington defines righteousness in his commentary like this. Whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. I'm going to repeat that. Righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. One more time. Righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and His coming kingdom. And so the key to this definition is whole person. The kind of whole person that Jesus has always, that God has always sought, and He so clearly describes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. See, Joseph was righteous in his whole being, in his inner person and in his outward behavior. His choice was in accordance with God's nature because it's in God's nature to be compassionate. It's in God's nature to be gracious. It's in God's nature to be forgiving. Joseph was like that. It's God's will that his coming kingdom will be made up of people upon whom God has poured out His grace and His mercy and compassion, despite the fact that those people have messed up a lot more often and more severely than Joseph believed Mary had. Is that good news? Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explicitly teaches to this multitude of people what few people might have ever noticed in the life of Joseph. And so with quick six illustrations, six quick illustrations, Jesus dismantles 
everyone's conception of righteousness. Each of the six begins with this. You have heard it said, and then, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. If you were here last week, you know we talked about how Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came so that the law, which included not only rules and regulations, but also beautiful stories, stories of God's creation, stories of God entering into a covenant relationship with human beings, stories of God's gracious rescue and deliverance, stories of God graciously calling people back to Him when they went astray, revealing that in those calls He's gracious and merciful and will receive them back to Himself. All of that is part of the law, and Jesus came to fulfill it. So when Jesus says here, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's not pitting himself against the law. The law says this, but I say this other thing. He's not in some way correcting what the law or the prophets have already said. Jesus, as part of the Trinity, conceived the law as his idea. Jesus, as part of the Trinity, assured that this law would be recorded, that it would be passed on. His Spirit inspired the prophets with words to speak and to commit to writing. What Jesus is doing here is exposing the wrong use and interpretation of the law. And the abuse of the law had gone on for so long that people no longer had a concept of the true purpose of the law or what righteousness really was. And that's why Jesus repeatedly calls the scribes and the Pharisees blind guides over and over. That's what he calls them, blind guides. So here in the sermon, Jesus is opening blind eyes to see true righteousness. You have equated murder with a physical act. But it's more than that. It's a heart issue. Murder is also anger and hate in your heart. If it weren't for those heart conditions, there would be no outward physical act of violence. You have equated adultery with a physical act of sex. But it's more than that. It's a heart issue. If you weren't lustful in your thoughts, if there was no coveting after what does not belong to you here in the heart, there would be no physical act. And right down the list, Jesus goes with divorce and oaths and retaliation. And he ends with this one. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which, by the way, is not in God's law. But this is a heart issue. It's a call to be better than that, higher than that. It's a call to a higher kind of love. To love those who hate you and to bless those who persecute you. It continues to be wrong to kill people physically. It continues to be wrong to commit adultery physically. Jesus isn't saying that it isn't wrong. What he's saying is that these issues are deeper and more complex than physical acts. And so Jesus is calling people to whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, his will, and his coming kingdom. So this is how these people listening to Jesus, can have some hope. Hope for righteousness that exceeds the half-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's why Jesus also calls them whitewashed tombs. You're only half-right. You look beautiful on the outside. Inside, you're full of death and decay. 
That's why he compares him to a cup. You're washed on the outside, but inside the cup is dirty, only half clean. Jesus is talking about whole righteousness here. And so these people can make righteousness about the heart and not about the 613 rules that they have not memorized, that they do not understand the nuances of, nor have they devoted more than 20 years of their lives to, to studying it. But they can think deeply about God and His character and the nature of His kingdom. So God, Jesus, is putting a big opportunity before these people. But it's not an easy one. Same opportunity for us. It's a lot easier for us to relegate righteousness to rules. Easy. Checklists, so easy for us. I love Jesus, so I don't drink. Check. Then righteousness becomes negative. Righteousness becomes prohibition. But righteousness is is more than that. Righteousness is positive. Righteousness leads to flourishing because true righteousness requires you and me to think deeply about the nature of God, deeply about the will of God, deeply about what His kingdom is like. And those are positive thoughts. Those are thoughts that lead to flourishing because ultimately those thoughts bring us right back to Jesus, right? Who embodies the nature of God. And the will of God. And the one who has come to inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. And let me tell you this. If you don't hear anything else this morning, you will always flourish in your life when you think about Jesus. Do you believe that? You'll always flourish in your life when your eyes are fixed on Jesus. Being righteous probably means that you will have to stop doing certain behaviors. And that you'll have to start doing other ones. So will I. But it means for sure that you'll have to look at what drives you to do the behaviors that you need to stop doing. What prevents you from doing the things that you should do? What's driving that? What insecurity? What lack of satisfaction? What pride? If you and I will be righteous, then we have to ask this. Why am I not secure in my identity in Christ? Who he says I am? A son, a daughter of the living God. Why is that not enough in my life? Why Does my pride need to have such a prominent place in all that I do? You're going to have to ask those questions multiple times every day if you'll be righteous. You've got to answer those questions before you respond to your spouse. Before you respond to your children. Before you respond to your neighbor or coworker. What, Lord, is a righteous response? What are righteous words that come from my heart? Words that seek to be in accord with your nature, your will, and your coming kingdom. we got to ask those questions before we act. 
What insecurity or dissatisfaction or incompleteness is driving this behavior? What behavior in this very moment of decision will reflect the nature and the will and the coming kingdom of God? It's not an easy task, is it? But think about the big possibilities for change in your life if you do this. Think about the possibility of change in the places and among the people where you live and move and have your being. If they were to see a righteousness that goes beyond the surface, beyond the externals, but a righteousness that gets to the heart and comes from the heart. A Joseph kind of righteousness that did not do what he justifiably could have done, what he was allowed to do, but a righteousness that oozed with mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. Because from the heart, Joseph wanted to conform his life to the nature and the will and the kingdom of God. And so that brings us to the second bookend, and don't panic, not, not long. Verse 48. Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hmm. I don't think that Jesus is calling us to moral perfection here. If Jesus held that out as a goal for us, moral perfection, or even a possibility of perfection here on earth, then why would he, in just a few short verses, teach his disciples to pray this? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus knows we're not perfect. He knows we're not going to sin. And so he gives us the remedy when we are morally imperfect. And that is to come to him and seek his forgiveness. Now, Jesus is talking about something different here. The word that we translate perfect actually means complete or fully developed. We translate it perfect, which means complete or fully developed. And something that is fully developed or complete is perfect. But it's what God is. God in his aseity lacks no thing. God in and of himself is complete. He's fully developed. He's perfect. He has no need for anything. He lacks nothing. And so what Jesus is commanding here is a wholeness or a completeness in their being. On the outside of the cup and on the inside. Not whitewashed tombs or half-clean cups. That's not a whole kind of person. You're not a whole kind of person. When the inside and the outside don't match, you're a conflicted person. A person who doesn't kill, but who is full of hate. A person who does not commit adultery, but whose mind is filled with lust. The perfection or completeness to which Jesus calls us is a consistency in our being. A consistency in our being. Whatever the rule, whether one of the six Jesus mentions here or six different ones or six other ones besides that, it doesn't matter. 
Because all of them will be approached by us with the same desire for perfection, for completeness, for a wholeness that accords with God's nature and will and coming kingdom. One commentator notes that this will bring flourishing to our lives as God flourishes. Because God is complete in each of these six illustrations that Jesus gives. God isn't a murderer. Instead, God gives life through faith in Jesus Christ and the power of His Spirit. God is faithful to His marriage commitment. He says that we're His bride. And He doesn't reject us. Instead, we will feast with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where He will present us as a radiant bride without wrinkle, spot, or blemish. Is that good news? That's because God is faithful, right? He's a faithful God. He keeps His oaths, His promises, His covenants. God does not retaliate against those who dishonored Him. That's the point. In His mercy, He does not give us what we deserve. And in His grace, He gives us for free that which we do not deserve. God loves His enemies. That's what Romans 10.10 says. While we were enemies, God reconciled Himself through Christ. And so in God, we see this kind of wholeness, completeness, consistency for which you and I should strive. Wholeness that comes to us when we, with all of our being, are oriented toward God. When we seek to be perfect like He is perfect, complete like He is complete, it's so much bigger. Righteousness, so much bigger than 600 and 13 laws could contain or codify. And so we need to make it so. You know, we need, we need to make it so that dish towels like this, nobody would ever buy them. Right? Because they don't have any meaning. It's not even funny. Because we have so demonstrated that, that, that righteousness is not reduced to something so trivial as not drinking even a little. Righteousness is bigger than that, deeper than that, more beautiful than that. Because it focuses on God, it focuses on His nature, His will, and His coming kingdom. So I pray that you and I will be that kind of righteous people. Let's pray. So Father, we ask that you would Give us what our hearts prayerfully long for. And that is your kind of righteousness. Lord, help us to get past externals. Help us get past valuing so much what we can make other people believe about us. Instead, make us real and authentic, Lord, so that the Inside matches the outside. What people see is truly who we are. Father, we want to reflect your nature and all of its many assets, facets. We want to reflect your will. Lord, we want to reflect rightly what it means to be someone who is part of your kingdom in our lives. Where we know that blessing will come from that. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would grow because of it. Because when people look at us, they see people who are truly righteous. 
not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. Thank you, Lord. We can never thank you enough that our righteousness, our right standing before God is because of you and your sacrifice. You loved us so much. You gave yourself for us. Thank you for that. Now, Lord, help us live out a a life of righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.